Pnaikes in Masachay and Monty, Epidnum Pnaikes, who's named Pnaikamor Hongais, who mother Zeus by Lace, Vainsmin Kikangante. Welcome to Con Langry, the podcast about constructed languages and the people who create them. I'm George Corley. With me across the pond in England is Bianca Mangum. Hello. And with me a little bit closer, but still very far away in the great state of Wisconsin, is my good friend, Professor William Annis. That's hysterical. Hello. I'm not a professor <laughs> of anything. I know. You're not a professor, but you sound like one on the radio. <laughs> But I play I one choose, on TV. Yeah, I will choose not to take that as an insult. <laughs> no, 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 no. I like. How I would like, that be an insult? Oh, I love William's radio voice because he sounds like a professor. He sounds like he knows what he's doing, and he does know what he's doing. Yeah, I, I, have, I put on a really convincing act. <laughs> Maybe not like uh, an Indiana Jones professor, but the normal kind of professor. If I had a whip, I would hurt myself. <laughs> I'm pretty sure my last thoughts on this planet is going to be William U. Klutz. <laughs> or possibly that's going to smart. Oh, dear. Um, well, you know, I've never broken just anything. Me. I've just sprained stuff. <laughs> and speaking of hurting things, I'd like to give a special shout-out. One of our most active listeners, I think, he, he sends in a lot of stuff, uh, Copa de Sal. He recently had uh, some blood pressure issues, understatement. And uh, he's out of the hospital now. So uh, I hope you're doing very well. And uh, I'd like to tell everybody out there, make sure to check your blood pressure once in a while. Because um, as he stated, hypertension is murder to the kidneys, among other things. Among other things. And I think we should have a translation challenge on that phrase, by the way. (laughs) High blood pressure is murder on the kidneys? Yes. (laughs) Okay. I prefer hysterical as a funny word. <laughs> so, William, you had something you wanted to mention right off the top. Oh, uh, I. some clever linguists had a conference years ago in Germany, I think, all about things that were very rare typologically. And one of the papers talked about a uh, valence-changing uh, suffix in the Wolof language, which I just loved. So I'm going to explain it as though it were in English, but because nobody knows Wolof. So imagine that there's a suffix, which we will pronounce krunk, which can go on unaccusative verbs, especially statives. So things like um, orange, to be orange, or to be cranky. So when you use this suffix, you get something like orange krunk. And what that gives you is a transitive verb that means that the subject possesses something that participates in that quality. So, I orange crunk a t-shirt means I have an orange t-shirt. Yes, that's great. Isn't that great? That is quite nice. It's a, it's a, it's, and it's a very, very rare kind of thing, which is surprising to me. Since <laughs> it seems No, it made so much sense. Like, sometimes with the rare things, it takes a little while to wrap your head around it, but that made perfect sense. Huh. One that's... thing, though, I wish you had said cunning linguists instead. <laughs> Oh, well, um, that's interesting. Anyway, um... It's an old joke. A very old joke. It's like the one linguist joke I know. (laughs) What about the, uh, pulmonic ingressive nasal fricative? What is it? Is that some sort of snort? Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's not an actual linguistic sound, but people made an IPA symbol for it that's that looks like a pig's snout. Anyway, that was the worst murdering of a joke ever, was it? Wasn't it? Anyway, uh, one more thing I want to mention before we get into our show. We did a poll, and it looks like most people are are cool with us occasionally featuring natlangs, natural languages, instead of our um, featured conlang segment. And a bunch of people also made other suggestions, and we thank you for all those suggestions. I'll be considering, we'll be considering doing different things with that in times when we're, like, running short of conlangs to, to really talk about. So, 
Yeah, there were some good ideas. I like the suggestion that at least a few conlangs could probably handle being discussed more than once, you know, spread out over two episodes. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Like those big ones we did back to back. Yeah. We could yeah. definitely spend five episodes on those. My yeah. thought on that is I don't want to do it back to back. I would, but I would revisit some of those like later on. Well, I know at least one about. of them's being revised right now, so it may be worthwhile to go back to it eventually. Which yeah. one? Siwa. Oh, okay. Yeah, we could go back to Siwa even if it wasn't being revised yeah. because we didn't talk about it. <laughs> um, I think now we can actually get into our main topic, which is William's Crusade Against Emphasis is what I have in the doc. Basically, we're going to talk about a few different things, but sort of our jumping off point is what do you mean when you say emphasis because there's a lot of things that em- you could mean by emphasis and there's and it leads into another topic that we're going to get into so william why do you hate people saying using emphasis cuz it doesn't mean anything rather it means too many things and it's really unclear i can easily list you know four or five things just in linguistics that people mean when they use the word emphasis, and rarely do I know what they mean. And I think, especially beginning conlangers, might use the word emphasis without really thinking through what they mean by that. And so they run the risk of simply recreating English semantics and all of that. And more to the point, English pragmatics, which is really what we're a good deal about what we're talking about today. So, I mean, the first thing is you should never describe a sound as emphatic. My notes are anybody who describes a sound as emphatic should be beaten. Yes. Right? You could, you could mean a sound is pharyngealized. You could perhaps mean it's fortis. You could mean it's geminated. Right? There's I mean, a, a doubled consonant. There's at least three different things you could mean by that when you say a sound is emphatic. And why don't you just tell us the real one? <laughs> yeah. Um, I think in phonology more than in other areas when you're doing a conlang, you probably should stick to the established terms as much as possible. When you get into, like, morphosyntactic alignment and other sort of morphology stuff, there's sometimes several different choices of terms you can use, but in phonology, everything's pretty well defined. Yeah, these days it's, it's pretty standard. Um, so the, the only exception I would make, and George brought this up in the notes is in the Semitic languages, pharyngealized consonants are often called emphatics. So yeah. if, you're doing, if you're doing a Semitic conlang or, or a Semitic bogolang, right, you know, start, start with um, proto-Semitic and then run it through the same sound changes that Sindarin went through, say. Then you're allowed to talk about emphatic consonants. Otherwise, please don't. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's interesting because I think somebody's trying to use Hebrew to flesh out Tolkien's dwarven, but I don't right. know. Yeah. That but that, that's standard in all the Semitic languages to describe that series of pharyngealized consonants as emphatic. As long as you know that's a standard term in the field of Semitic languages, right. use it in that case. But if not, that's it's very confusing. Of, that's kind of like my stance on apostrophes for non phonetic reasons. Like if you have a Romlang, then by all means go ahead and use the apostrophe for cliticized things and such. Sure. But otherwise, it's not really necessary. I'm and... starting to wish we didn't have an apostrophe in English. <laughs> <laughs> Why? But anyway, there's... What does there's... it do? Nothing. Oh. Yeah. There's a lot more to what people call emphasis than the, the, the phonological aspect. You mentioned in your notes, William, there's a whole lot of sort of pragmatic pragmatic and semantic things that are called focus in languages, or called emphasis, right? which leads to focus, but yeah. Right. So typically when people say something is emphatic, like at the word level or the sentence level, they mean one of two things. They mean what's usually called focus, which can mean multiple different things. Or possibly they are talking about particular kinds of topics. And by topic, I mean topicality, the, the grammar, not the, the, the top level, you know, theme of discussion, but, you know, topic as, as the, the grammatical feature. 
So typically when people say something's emphatic, they mean it's focused. What can focus mean? And, and that becomes complicated too. You can mean something is especially relevant or important. You can use the term focus to represent something new, something that you, some new discourse topic you brought into the sentence is typically um, falls under focus, however focus is marked in your language. Or you could mean contrastive focus, which means you're typically correcting, you're either correcting or pre-correcting what you think your listener understands, right? So uh, I'm trying to think, you know, did Bob go to the store yesterday? No, Jane went to the store. So that's contrastive focus. I'm saying it wasn't Bob, it's Jane. I'm correcting a piece of information. And in English, these things are almost always represented prosodically, which is also very confusing, right? It's just, you say the thing, it's tone of voice. Yeah. Um, and that probably makes it a little difficult for people to pull out of English, because it's not something that you can really see very visibly if you're a, a native English speaker. Like, you, ha you, you kind of have to have somebody explain to you that stress is, works this way in English because you can't really see, since there's no, there's not really changes in word order or anything. Typically. Yeah. And, or... I mean, there, there's weird clefting things you can do. It was Jane who went to the store? Yeah, you can, you can do some syntactic changes, but I think... Most of the time, it's kind of hidden, and you kind of subconsciously getting with, get it without knowing right. what's going on. Exactly. Um, and in fact, uh, while I was doing some, some research for this topic, I, I saw some papers where uh, in multiple languages, if you ask people to remember the participants in a discussion, you know, like if you give people, tell people a little story or you give them some sentences – and then you ask them questions about that later, they have a much, they're much more likely to remember things that were focused. Hmm. Okay. Right. So not only are we producing focus pretty easily, but we are primed to attend to it and to remember it. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like it's, it's ingrained. And, and you listed a bunch of different types of focus in here. Right. And, and such. Um, you mentioned that. Okay, salience can be one thing. Novelty, sure. That's that strikes me as something that very commonly gets different sort of grammar, actually. Exactly. Introducing new discourse topics into a conversation is usually handled in all sorts of funny ways. For example, and most of us don't think about this, a sentence like "A man helped me cross the street yesterday" is extremely unusual. Uh huh. It seems perfectly grammatical. Why is it unusual? Because we don't introduce especially human beings that are indefinite as the subject of transitive sentences. Yeah. We don't? We do not. In fact, it is so unusual in normal everyday speech that in some languages it is impossible to say the sentence. Well, think if you think about it, it is unusual. If, if I were writing something and I had something like that happening, I'd probably, if the man was important enough to really care who he was, I'd probably start with some description of that guy before I mentioned him. Well, typically in a normal conversation, we'll either say what we're doing and then describe the details, or we'll introduce him with, you know, there was a guy, and yeah. he helped me. Right, so you introduce the new ah. person, which is typically focused, and then you say what they did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm trying to remember what the language is. You know, there's, there, there are one or two languages where the sentence, an indefinite noun, cannot ever be the subject of a transitive sentence. Hmm. Interesting. Gross. You have, to use, you have to either use a weird passive or you have to um, introduce them. How is it gross? It's just gross. <laughs> You're unusual. Anyway. <laughs> Thanks. If you, if you look at the numbers, a sentence like that, even in languages that allow it, are, are really, really, really rare. Like less than 1% or 2% of the time are you going to get a sentence like that. Yeah. In natural discourse, right? Once people start writing, it's weird. But mm -hmm. So these are all of these things where it's easy for us to come up with sentences like, a man helped me cross the street yesterday. You might get weird sort of ideas about emphasis and blah, blah, blah. Okay. Um, one thing that makes me... Most interested. I think uh, we talked a little bit about this kind of thing in our 
episode about non-configurationality because non-configurational languages, I think you can change focus by changing the word order sometimes. Absolutely. So Hungarian is very well studied for exactly this reason. Mm -hmm. uh, Hungarian does focus marking with word order. So you have topic, which is typically, you know, what you're orienting the statement around is typically old information. And you might have some blah, blah, blah. Then you have focus, the verb, and everything else. So uh -huh. the most important, the, the focus position is whatever comes right before the verb. Oh, interesting. Um, so this is really interesting. So there are lots of ways of marking focus. Hungarian, ancient Greek, um, apparently Korean uses a word order um, to, to represent focus as well. Here's the problem. No matter what you say, most of the time something is going to come before the verb. So how do you distinguish when that material is focused and when that is not focused? Once again, in addition to the word order movement, Hungarian has some prosodic stuff. Ah, uh, interesting. There's, there's different um, stress accent. Because obviously, and this is a problem that you'll see sometimes in analysis of dead languages. They'll say you, uh, and this happens all the time in ancient Greek and Latin, they'll say, oh, in Greek poetry, the first word in a poetic line is emphasized, or the last word of a poetic verse is emphasized, right? There are 15,000 verses in the Odyssey. You cannot possibly have it be true that every first word or every last word are emphatic. They cannot all be focused. The same is true in hung Hungarian. Every single word that comes before a verb cannot possibly be focused. So you have to beef that up with some things. So if you tell me in your conlang that this or that word order is emphatic, you had better explain to me exactly in what situations it's emphatic, because if, if that word order can appear in other circumstances that do not indicate focus or emphasis or whatever you're telling me, I'll be very confused. That reminds me that I need to re rejigger some things in Ayuruyo because I um, started with the idea of putting things at the end of the sentence when the, the default order is SOV, but if you put stuff after the verb, and I'm thinking, really, I should just call, I could call, I should call that a focus position right. after the verb, and maybe also put topics at the front. I don't know. So, so that would give you Latin, and uh, and with a little less flexibility, English. In English, we tend to shunt, especially contrastive focus, and what we might call announcement focus, um, off to the end of the sentence. But um, one question: the focus does it have to be any particular grammatical role? Well, in a non-configurational language, your focus can be anything. Okay. In English... I can, I can shut adjectives down there, too. Sure. In, in English, it gets a bit weird. We have to do strange clefting things if we want to focus this or that. They, they may not naturally go. Uh, subjects, especially. I saw a big round ball, which was green. Right? Right. <laughs> English has some annoying need where this stuff is regarded, I guess. Well, and it's true of any language with a pretty fixed word order. So let's go through some of the ways focus can be marked. It can be just prosodic, mm -hmm. like, you know, I saw him Wednesday. It can be movement. It was Wednesday that I saw him. And, and, and other languages have a little more flexibility with their movement rules. You could have focus particles either coming before or after the word. Um, we've already talked about word order and the weird problems that presents. Um, some languages have special verb marking. Huh. So both Coptic and Pular, which I learned about today, use different kinds of conjugation when the default word order is deranged for focus reasons. Ah, okay, I see. And Pular is fun because it has yet another verb form for when the verb itself is focused. Ha, okay. <laughs> So, you know, I did see him yesterday, or I saw him yesterday, you know, that sort of stuff. And, but in, in both the case, well, I, don't, I can't remember the Coptic offhand, but in the Pular case as well, you have both special verb marking and movement. So it is almost always the case that focus is indicated with a mix of things. Hmm, okay. Especially there's going to be prosodic weirdness, which most people don't think about for their conlangs, but that usually seems to be involved. Hmm, okay. It seems like... <laughs> The more nuanced you get into these things, the more has to be done. Yeah, it's sort of... 
anytime you get into pragmatics, it's always Pragma- pragmatics is quite wonderful and annoying. It's always <laughs> it's always kind of head breaking. Not only one side on the one side figuring out what exactly you mean to put down because it's so dependent on context. You have to like almost make up examples of a whole scene or something. Absolutely. Absolutely. Things like, yeah, I hate that worst of all. This is emphatic. Can you please give me more than a single phrase or a single sentence? (laughs) It makes no sense to talk about quote unquote emphasis, to talk about focus, focus and, and topicality, all of that. Those are two more topics where, you, it really happens at the conversation, at the discourse level. A single sentence cannot tell you what you need to know about yeah. how this works. And I was just thinking about the before the the idea of figuring out based on based on having to create a dialogue in a scene or something. But you pointed out the second part of what I was going to talk about is how do you pr- present discourse and such in a grammar with examples right and and communicate that to even a linguistically savvy reader it's very difficult because I, for one thing it's kind of a new study in linguistics yeah how do you explain it you you have to give people like a paragraph example and do all this kind of stuff like no, i'm I... kind of in my sort of the the non-configurationality section of my grammar I used a one-sentence example transformed a bunch of different ways to show different um, word orders and how they mean different things, but ultimately that will only really tell you what the syntactic possibilities are. It can't. I can't really tell you how that's used in discourse without referring to you to one of my texts or something. Right. I mean, these days I typically have an entirely separate chapter on discourse mm-hmm. um, for my languages just to, to cover things like this. Uh, so I maybe exaggerated a little. I think if, if, if you stop using the word emphasis and, and think about things in terms of focus, and if you do a little Googling, you know, there's plenty of documentation and papers talking about focus and, and, and topics that will give you all sorts of great detail and will really help you understand this idea. Right. If you just italicize the English translation or, you know, put something in all caps for particular discourse topics, you know, the book is read, the book is read, you know, whatever, you can give sentence level examples. But really or, or do what I did and um represent all my my focus things with um in in the English translation with um, fronted... Sure, with clefting. Yeah, fronted clefting. Structure. Which doesn't sound very natural, right? It's red that the book is. It just sounds goofy in English, but, you know. <laughs> yeah. It's kind Yoda. of Yoda speak or, or, yeah. or some sort of faux Irish. <laughs> faux Irish? What? Oh. Yeah, I- Irish English does these funky clefting things. <laughs> okay. Well, but that was that was a uh, big topic. We may we may actually revisit focus. I'd love in to the revisit future. that with like pragmatics tacked on as well. Yeah, well, we may. Well, the yeah. whole the whole the whole topic focus, new information, old information, sort of discourse structure stuff is really interesting, and definitely we should we can come back yeah. to that again. We need to take take a stab at you know. Focus and topic. What's the difference between those two? And and, right. and, um, and how do you tell the difference between contrastive focus and a contrastive topic? Because sometimes when people say emphasis, they mean a contrastive topic, which is altogether different. So yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> but um, we only have so much time in the show. Right. But I just this was just part. I just want conlangers to stop calling things emphatic, please. I beg you. Yes. Yes. Just learn some some real terms for it, and then we can well, figure it out. We say real terms. Sometimes, I mean, even just today, I was, you know, looking at some grammar of some Australian language that used the word emphasis all the time, and it drove me bonkers. But <laughs> usually, it's it's in a context where you know what they mean by that. But I, I really wish people would not use it because it's, it's yes. very precise. We know better now. Okay, with that, we're going to move on to our featured conlang today, which is Yivrian. Yep. Okay. We should say that this was invented by Jesse Bangs. Jesse Bangs. Who is 
famous or infamous for what he calls the Art Langer's rant. Back in 2002, he made um, a post to the mailing list called Lighting Lighting Some Flames (laughs) Towards Conlang Artistry, which I remember the response to that post very well. It was a very heated debate. So... And, and he's worried about the idea of sort of conlinging schools, people who care about naturalness and blah, blah, blah. So, you know. What is this, like yeah. different art schools? Oh, no, I don't want to be an impressionist. I want to be a realist. I'm going to exactly. go be I the new man. Oh, this, God. I think oh. I read this, and um, there's some points I, I are that are okay, but there's some that I don't agree with. But anyway. That's I was wondering what, what pontalist conlanging would look like. What? Pointillist, uh, who's the famous pontalist? Oh, pointillism? Pointillism, uh, Isn't that Surratt? Yes. Yeah. I actually was looking at the point. Like, I went away last weekend. No, two weekends ago. I don't know anymore. Anyway, I went away and the hotel had, like, a cut-in part of his most famous painting that they show in, like, Ferris Bueller. Anyway, I was looking at it and I could not sleep for, like, two hours because I could not remember his stupid name. And of course, I didn't even have the internet to look it up. I was so mad. <laughs> anyway, try to imagine a language like that. That sounds like uh, an ISO lang where you just get the little bits. Yeah, little dots. Anyway. anyway uh... <laughs> We've confused George terribly. Yes, Back to I'm... Ivrian. I'm 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 not sure exactly what you're talking about because I'm not into philosophies like that. But anyway, Yuvrian. It has nice sort of website grammar. Yeah, the organization's fine. I uh, haven't really lo- had a chance to look at it. I think I looked at it a long time ago, and then small children came to my house, <laughs> and I had no time to review it. I hate when small children come to my house. I love small children. Well, you can keep them all. I despise children. <laughs> Man, well. You can teach them Klingon. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, I, don't, I don't know. I don't want to teach myself Klingon. All right, so pick something else. <laughs> but anyway, um, you can teach them my languages. I'm trying to find a definition of this contradictive thing. Me which too. I'm Co- guessing is a case. Yes, but the contradictive. Contradictive. Oh. Because he says that's described in the syntax section, but there is no syntax section. Oh, dear. <laughs> we have one, another one of these incomplete content lengths it's with not no under syntax. Verbals. Well, it seems to be on the nouns rather than the verbs. Right. So um, the nouns are interesting because, or I think they're interesting because, the case marking is a mix of suffix, prefix, and circumfix. Mm-hmm. Which is highly unusual in natural languages to have that sort of mix. Yeah, I'm much more used to seeing verbs that have a weird mix of prefix and suffix marking. This seems less likely to me for case marking on nouns. Yeah, well, verbs have a bunch of different things to mark, whereas nouns... um, I mean, I can concoct a historical scenario where you would get some suffixes and some prefixes, but... um, I would expect them to... Do different things though, not all be cases. Right, well, maybe. Yeah. I mean, we've got we've got the nominative. Who cares? The ablative and the dative are suffixes, and the genitive is a prefix. And I can easily see the, that sort of marking being the result of a preposition that got glommed onto the noun over time. Oh, okay, yeah. The circumfix is weirder, which involves both a case marker and a glommed on something. But it's not. If it is, it seems to be based off the regular dative, and it's like they tacked on the contra part to the front. Yes. But I really want to know what a contra dative is. Me too. I couldn't find out. I mean, he's got some really nice large texts, but there aren't any interlinears, so I, I don't. Right? Yeah, I, I no can't. So his noun classes are some funky mix of Indo-European and frankly they look to me like Caucasian languages. You have a mix of case marking and various kinds of ablaut going on in some cases or some situations in, in some noun classes. And then you have you've got the K class nouns which have a double S most of the time except in the dative and the contradative when the double S turns into a K. So the word for song is 
vasa, but the word, um, but the dative of vasa is vakosa. Mm, okay, yeah. Um, and then an even less common class that ends in ind, which disappears entirely for two cases. So it's it's a, a plausible mix of different kinds of noun torture. Hmm. Yeah. Um, he also has a great deal of verb morphology stuff in here. He has voice uh, suffixes, and he has past, present, future tense. That's all. But it has... And I'm not sure about what this phase thing is. I'm... I, oh, I think... It's just affirmative, think... negative, and dubitative. No, that's not phase. Oh, that's what polarity, what? Yeah. I think it's, is it aspect? Right, he's got, I think of Navajo again. We've got cross-cutting aspects. We have straight up, we've got straight up aspect, and then we have the incoative, the continuous, the sensitive, and the perfect, which he's calling phase, but are simply refinements of the rest of his um, aspectual system. So he has complicated aspect in addition to tense, which is interesting. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, oh, of course I love that he has, what, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven moods? <laughs> this is looking, I don't like the, like, I don't mind the moods, I don't like the prefixes he chose from the moods, kotoso, rodomovo. Right, oh. so this is the thing that drives me bonkers about this language, is there's so much about it that's sort of interesting and complicated and fairly naturalistic. But then we get a sequence of prefixes that all have the same vowel. Now, there are situations where the vowels change, sort of anticipatory, what would we say, a forward vowel harmony. But the same thing happens in voice. Active voice ends in A, passive voice ends in O, reflexive ends in U. Yes. Too Esperanto-esque. I like the idea that he's got, that the negation is marked on the verb. I don't think mm-hmm. people do, ex- except people who are fans of Japanese. I don't see that too often. So that was really, yeah. I, I mean, are there? I could be missing out. Maybe people are doing it more these days. But I don't out. know. Wait, what? He has negative verbs. Oh yeah, I have that. Okay. But I guess I haven't seen it very often. Almost everybody just works with the the negative particle, right? And that's actually something I mentioned uh, mistakenly. What? with an, an association with something else, but he has basically affirmative, negative, and then dubitative polarity on verbs, or whatever you call it. Um, I would call the dubitative potential, probably, is more likely really? mod- a modern term. Yeah. I mean, it, it means things like might rule, might have ruled, perhaps will rule. So He it, has potential as a mood already, though. Oh, really? Yeah, he, yes. has, he has potential mood um, indicating... Oh, Ability. Okay, so right, so that's good then. Then you need to so avoid use dubitative. Yeah, it's hard to find terms. This is what we were talking about earlier. In some cases, it's hard to figure out what term to use because we want to be internally consistent. This guy, I feel like, is adding way too much. Really? Is, yeah. At least with all of these moods and stuff. What I guess I'm not a mood fan. I like moods. Uh, I would like to see if if he does anything interesting with with moods pragmatically or syntactically in different cases, but I don't know if he has anything on that. What's yeah. nice is he's got an entire discussion of semantic classes for his verbs with lots of of discussion there, uh-huh. big walls of text, which you know scares some people. But I, I appreciate that. Uh, again, I think he could use more examples. But it's nice to show that people have been thinking about these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, inventive, stative. Yeah, he has. Uh, he has a nice little chart about the, these verb classes, and he talks a little about some of the semantics of aspect. I don't know. Anything else? Did you, Did you guys see anything else that stuck out at you? He has enormous texts in the language. Huge. Yeah, I really wish he had put some glossing because I was like, oh look, he has these nice texts. Nothing. So clearly he's been at this for a while and he's done a fair amount of translating. Unfortunately, it doesn't really do me any good because right. I haven't learned his language and I'm not going to. Yeah, I can't, I can't find a word list either, which is disappointing. 
He doesn't even have like any sample sentences either. Because I want to know what the hell a contradative is. It's going to bother me. Yeah. Oh, this is interesting. Looking very quickly, um, I usually look at the phonology first, but I just I just noticed that he has some very interesting allophony stuff going on, which you know, if you're going to be good with phonology, you need to put allophony in there. And oh, apparently I googled it. Someone asked him what the contradative was. He says, sure, the contradative is a variation on the dative that is used for arguments that are harmed by the action. Usually it is oh. only used in cases where the dative would also occur. Is there a term, another term for that? Yes, we have benefactive and malefactive. Malefactive, yeah. Maybe he should, maybe he should change that but uh if it every time i hear contradative i think contradance <laughs> so imagine little yeah nuts, you call it something you know, different it's square dancing so that's it so that's oh. another interesting situation where where you know like like i mentioned i think last time that vietnamese has multiple ways of marking the passive one of which is to say that the the, the receiver of the action you know got a bad deal out of things or was unpleasantly mm-hmm. affected so this is interesting that he's got an entire case just to mark that. Well, are there, aren't there? I think there aren't there natural language that has a malefactive. Uh, typically, it's. I mean, I'm used to it being the same as the benefactive. You just uh. have it, right. You just have to to interpret. I mean, if the verb described is inherently unpleasant, then you take a malefactive interpretation. Yeah, mm, I think okay. that was one of my favorite things about the language I killed off was that to kill. So you'd have agent kill, and then the person being killed was in the benefactive. And, just, <laughs> and I was like, all right. Right. And, and that, to me, is expected. If, if somebody thinks something else should be expected, they should let us know. That would be interesting. Yeah. No. I think you could do that or do a dedicated malefactive, but using the benefactive for both. Just the, the idea seems interesting to me, actually. But anyway, so yeah, this is very well thought out, where well uh, worked out grammar here presentation, despite missing some syntax. And a and a dictionary. Oh, a dictionary would be good. He um, has an enormous poem of wisdom literature. Mm-hmm. The ninety nine sayings. He even concocted a gnomic poetic form. <laughs> Neat. It's called the 99 Sayings. Again, no glossing, which is vexing, but whatever. Oh, uh, yeah. And they're numbered, which allows you to see his number system. I want to look at his number system again here. He did bother to describe that. Oh, is it based on eight? No. No. no? It, it's decimal. It's just his way of indicating numbers bigger than 10 is ascending. Mm. Yeah. It's actually fairly similar to what you see in European languages, where, in this case, up to 20, there's... Uh, a certain paradigm, and then after that... Well, that's true. Number systems can be awfully demented and strange. Mm-hmm. Do you but guys ever use... On we, we need to do a, an episode chains. on... It's a little weird compared yeah. to what I'm reading. We need to do an episode on up number systems. I usually like to hew toward the uh, Chinese-style structure on mine, but I did something really annoyingly confusing on Aereo. Excellent. I love it when I can't produce my own conlang correctly. <laughs> it's 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 a hybrid vegesimal and decimal that breaks your head. Oh, like good. Basque. Or French. <laughs> Does Basque do that? I think so, from what I've read and what I remember, yes. So that's interesting. So I wonder if, right, everyone... Yeah. Right, so French... Weird number system is supposed to be a substrate effect of, I don't know, Gallic or, or Frankish. Frankish? Frankish. But now maybe, you know, it's even pre-Indo-European you know, if, if Basque uses a system like that. Yeah, I think it has some weird vagesimal thing going on, hmm. which of course makes my brain sad. But, <laughs> you know, uh, someone will have to correct me on this. Anyway. Uh, I was going to make it octal hexadecimal, but I decided later that they, they actually have ten fingers, so. And we thank you for that. 
<laughs> All right. So anyway, uh, I, I would say beginners bit. might find it interesting to look at his noun morphology, especially, mm-hmm. just to get an idea of a, a not entirely implausible way of doing funky things with your nouns if you're going to have them declined. Um, I think he punted in a few places in his verbal system. Mm. I mean, it's interesting. Oh. The ideas are interesting, but phonetically, it's it's too regular. One one more thing. I don't think about this very often, but he has adverbs that have inflections for degree. Mm-hmm. So I rarely think of adverbs as having any sort of inflection at all. I usually just leave them. There are some languages where adverbs are inflected to agree with the subject. <laughs> wow. We can talk about this another time. Uh, anyway, so yeah, Yivrian's neat. And, and I think everyone who makes sort of artistic conlangs might want to read his Artlanger's rant. Yeah. Not Not because you might agree with him, but just to think about the issue. Different things. And what would a cubist slang look like? <laughs> Logebond. <laughs> uh, no, I think that's giving too much credit to Logebond. I actually like cubism sometimes. Okay. Uh, but I'd never like Logebond. <laughs> what would expressionism be? Oh, expressionism. It wouldn't be quite like Tokipona, that would be just... No. It would have to be something that that paints in broad strokes, but it's still still realistic enough that you can get it. Yeah, I think it would be some Elvish language. Hmm. Welsh. Welsh. No, I don't know... (laughs) The original Elvish language. I would would put uh, Elvish languages, a lot of them with sort of romantic... Yeah, that yeah. Now that you mentioned that's right, the elves are definitely depressed romantics. No, they'd be something stupid like, uh, well, that's more an architectural thing, but more like baroque. No baroque. No. That would be stupid elvish crap. Baroque would be probably people who do historical conlangs with heavy, heavy sort of derivations for over a thousand years and extreme details and everything and also develop poetry for it. Yeah, that that's the that's that's yeah. the zompist, that's the zompist five pages of sound changes. People are the baroque. Yes, cuz that's what baroque is. It's it's enormously complex and requires yeah. a lot of education to understand. So I tend uh, to ignore those. They tend to be quite boring. <laughs> oh. I, I find them exhausting. But anyway, <laughs> so um <laughs> I have anyway. some feedback that I can throw in here. Feedback? Yes. Uh, have we done this feedback before? From Robin? No, I don't think so. Okay. Well, this is an email from Robin. He said, I wasn't sure where I should leave this little message, but I just had to say something. I'm a beginner when it comes to conlang. Truth be told, though I've been writing about my con world for years but I was using a truly bastardized version of Esperanto for one of their languages. I have since scrapped it to start fresh and think of myself as a true beginner. Yes, you are a true beginner. (laughs) (laughs) Cue David Bowie song. (laughs) Uh, I tend to let my love for Japanese guide the way a bit too much, though I was... So I was kind of scared of infixes. But I made myself go through Bianca's Inyauk lessons yesterday, and they are really are pretty interesting. She and William did say it was it was true. Glad I took a chance. Yeah, infixes can be interesting. I also wanted to say how much I appreciate episode 15, Getting Out of Creative Ruts. Blending Natlangs is what I think of to get out of it a lot. I also look to specific words out of a bunch of languages to see what I like best before adding to the lexicon. It takes a while, but feels more personal than using a word generator for all your words. I love this podcast. I like knowing that not all my ideas are crazy. That, looking at all different languages, is a good, actual, actually a very good lexicon generation technique. I prefer... Now that I've gotten used to doing it, I prefer to to generate a giant list from awkwards and pick and choose, but, you know, this looking at, at different languages and picking and choosing is, is cool, too. I tend to look at different languages to pick and choose 
um, semantic range and how different ideas are expressed across to lots of different languages. For me, that's the most interesting part. I don't typically borrow the sound of a word from different languages. That almost always happens from scratch. That's a good idea, The doing the semantic range. That will keep you from relaxing English, basically. Right, exactly. And it's interesting to see how different languages do it. Mm-hmm. Well, that's sad, though, that she learned a language that Bianca just killed. <laughs> well, you, you, you nominally killed off in Yelk, but it's still going to be online forever, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so going back to the semantic range thing. A good way to do that, I found I like to go to Wiktionary... Go there, look up whatever you want to like translate, and then go down, look at all the translations, and there will usually be at least one or two languages that will have multiple things there for you to be able to see the different ranges that they have. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a good idea. I like that. And going back to Nyak, yes, I did kill it off, but it will still be there in like immemorial to itself. <laughs> yeah, well, it's... Uh, no, I think I, I'm glad it's staying up because I think it is an excellent, excellent thing for beginners to look at because it's yeah. not as it's not Esperanto. You've got various kinds of allophony going on, especially with the vowels and, and a different kind of grammar. So I, I like that. Yeah, thank you. Um, it is kind of for beginners because that was my first conlang, which, you know, I think is one of the reasons why I have grievances with it now. But <laughs> it, it's simple enough to start with, but there's some fun things going on. You know, I was resistant to thinking about this before, but maybe in the future sometime we should do a bonus episode where we actually review each other's conlangs. Each pick- um, an entire episode of, well, not an episode, but, you know, focusing on one of my old conlangs and everything I did wrong, or everything <laughs> I or, or right now consider to have done wrong. Might be useful. <laughs> uh, I mean, normally, you know, George, we've avoided talking about our... I mean, we mention our languages, but we don't want to do a whole episode about our, our languages. It seems kind of goofy for us to yeah. to do, but to, 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 to workshop old ones that have problems that we might want to discuss seems worthwhile. That works. Uh, it's kind of... Well, I do have old languages... But they they're not online where I'd have to actually like post what my my uh, terrible crap is. Yeah, that would be sad to prevent present a nice layout for language you've given up on already. Yeah. Yeah. How would you even get the effort to do that? I think that's when I decided to give up on Onyak. I didn't have the energy to continue with the grammar anymore. Just because when I was writing it, I was at the point like, I don't like this. There's much better ways to do this. And I just wanted to work on something else instead. Well, that's great. I mean, so- you know, I'm I'm one for like keeping all my stuff and then revisiting it later. Yeah. Which is what I did for Ayurio. In fact, I wrote in the uh, in the preface to the grammar, which should be coming up soon if I don't decide to add three more sections to it again or something. <laughs> um, but I I wrote a preface that included some of the history of it and where it started, which is very different from where it uh, went. I didn't I didn't go into details, but where where Ayuru started when it was called Ayuru Errol was a um, different it was a different um con world concept definitely and i um made some major changes between there and here but anyway i think we can wrap this up uh bianca do you have any words of wisdom uh no i want (laughs) you had wisdom earlier yeah but i used it already at the beginning of the show yeah Uh, i used it too early be wise and save your words for when they're important. Yeah. And William, do you have anything? Yeah, I translated a phrase I liked a lot into my current language. Which means silence never sounds bad. Which was advice to a composition student. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And... Right, and, we do th- and we do this in languages too, right? We want to cover everything and we do too much. I think sometimes you get the kitchen sink effect. So sometimes you you, you don't need to specify. You just step back. You don't yeah. need you don't need twelve moods. Step away. 
I think, like, I'm a fan of saying, sometimes it's not what you have, it's what you don't have. Yeah. Like, articles. I don't know. Plurals. Plurals, yeah. Uh, Well, and with that, I'm going to say, happy conlanging. Ta-da! Thank you for listening to Conlangery. You can find all our episodes and show notes, as well as subscribe to our iTunes or RSS feeds through conlangery.conlang.org. You can also like our Facebook page or follow at Conlangery on Twitter. If you would like to contact us with corrections, comments, questions, or suggestions, or even suggest your own Conlang as a feature, please email conlangery at gmail.com or call into our new voicemail line 304-873-6281. We also have a handy suggestions form on our site. Our theme music was created by Xander Medeus. Hello? Ah, oh, you cut out right while we're doing the intros. Well, I got it recorded. Hello? On the... Yeah, I, I wonder I... where... George! Hello? George! I... Can you hear me? Hello? Uh... Maybe his network ate a peanut. We're ruining oh, the show now. Clearly. Well, you can keep recording, but we can't hear you <laughs> say anything. I Kick Skype in the nads. Okay. <laughs> I don't think our listeners need to hear us going, hello, hello, hello. 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 You're going to have to edit this episode so yes. much. Should we start again? Sure. Especially yeah, since whose phone is ringing? Going. That's that's the house phone. Hold on a second. Today's just a mess.